This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how you can keep yourself and your family safe and healthy in this increasingly toxic world. This week, we're going to revisit some of the highlights of the show over the past year. We've had some phenomenal guests with some really important insights into our planet, our food, our clothes, and our kids. Here to start us off is our good friend, biologist and author, Dr. Stanis Steingraber, talking about Rachel Carson and how climate change was not something that ever showed up on her radar. Here's Sandra Steingraber on Green Street News. Our idea of her is that she was prescient. She was brilliant. Rachel Carson was right, right? Like all kinds of women with breast cancer have marched carrying signs saying Rachel Carson was right. And our understanding of her is that she had this ability to foresee things and was ahead of her time. And that is true, but it's not because she was sort of mystical or had some ability to, um, you know, some kind of supernatural powers. It was, she's just a really good scientist and was she was able to look at databases across the scientific literature and piece together trends from really obscure sources. Like she figured out that former fighter pilots who then were, after World War II, recruited to be crop dusters, had higher rates of diabetes. And then from that, was able to piece together that pesticides that they were spraying like DDT probably were interfering with their hormone systems. And she was right about that. But she she looked at those databases and she looked at what was happening to chickens and roosters who were being fed uh, grain that was laced with pesticides and, and then was able to pull these disparate data together and make conclusions that were correct. And she was very good at that, but she wasn't exactly like, she wasn't like mystical or prescient or anything, right? My particular column this month focuses on this big thing that she was really wrong about. And she was wrong in a really big way because she wrote, it was her best-selling book, right? The Sea Around Us, which came out in 1951, smack in the middle of the 20th century, in which the ocean is the main character of the book. And she's very clear that the ocean is not, this is not an ocean story in the sense that the ocean is the scenery for a human seafaring voyage or something. Humans aren't in the story at all. The ocean is the main character. And she shows us using the cutting edge science of oceanography and marine biology of the time, the way in which the sea drives and determines all the cycles of life on Earth, including our climate. And she's right about that, the way in which ocean currents and the ice, sea ice are, a she called it a barometer um, that determine the climate. But in general, the sea appears as magisterial, as formidable, as all powerful. And then, after the book was published in 51, she began to look at data on what was happening with above ground atomic bomb testing, which was seeding the oceans as well as all across the US and including, you know, inside children's teeth with radioactive fallout. And there was radioactive dumping going on in the ocean that was actually seeding long live radioactive isotopes into the entire food chain. And this could affect things ocean wide. And that was astonishing to her and it created almost an existential crisis to believe that human beings could not just contaminate one small place, but could affect an entire ecosystem like the ocean. And so in, she, she actually published a second edition of the book in 1960, nine years later, in which she admitted that um, she was wrong and then included radioactivity in the ocean. And so her mea culpa was written in a way that, look, not only me is wrong about this, but we are all wrong about this, right? Um, and she 
talked about the reasons why it's so easy to overlook this data because she talked about how there's a comfort in the belief that at least the ocean was inviolate and beyond man's ability, and she, of course, she used the word man at the time, beyond man's ability to change and to despoil. But when you see data to the contrary, you can't write about the ocean anymore in the atomic age without thinking the, these unthinkable thoughts and coming to terms with what she called this ominous problem. She also pointed out that the ongoing practice of dumping radioactivity in the ocean out of a mistaken belief that the ocean was so vast and so much bigger than all of us that it would only have negligible effects. Um, she said, the whole practice, despite protestations of safety by the regulatory agency, rests on the most insecure basis of fact. And I mean, I think that has so much relevance to us today that we know so much about the climate crisis and you know, scientists are ringing the alarm bell about ominous problems, and yet our policies act as though we're still in 1951 and we don't know any of these things. And our policies rest on, to use Carson's words, the most insecure basis of fact. And in the next part of my essay, I um, look at the crisis in the oceans created by not just heating of the water, which is creating these marine heat waves, but also acidification when carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is, you know, a third higher than it used to be, when that diffuses and dissolves into ocean water, it turns into carbonic acid. And so we see now that the whole ocean is 30% more acid than it, than it used to be. That is causing organisms that have shells, um, shells being made of calcium carbonate, to dissolve, because um, calcium carbonate will go into solution at, at when the pH reaches a certain point. And that includes, of course, coral reefs, which were beloved by Carson, she wrote a lot about. But then in addition, you've got acidification, which causes the coral, which is has these calcium carbonate skeleton, to start to dissolve and become fragile and, and frail. And so you've got both things going on that can potentiate each other. So it's like um, the coral has osteoporosis, essentially, from the acidification. And then at the same time, their food source is driven out by the high temperature. So they've got this double problem. And so that's what contemporary marine biologists are interested in. And Carson would have been fascinated by this science. She couldn't foresee it. She didn't have a working theory of climate change. Dr. Sandra Steingraber on climate change and Rachel Carson. Another guest this year was reporter and author Alden Wicker, who caught our eye with her provocative and eye-opening book, To Die For, that's D-Y-E, How Toxic Fashion is Making Us Sick and How We Can Fight Back. Here's Alden Wicker on Green Street News. If people saw the number of chemicals present in these products, I think they would be really shocked. It would run to 50 ingredients or more. And we would look at that list and we'd say, hey, I don't want formaldehyde in my products. I don't want PFAS forever chemicals in my products next to my skin. But right now, all we're told is that it's 100% polyester or 56% you know, rayon viscose. There's a handful of people throughout the world who study toxicology or chemical or textile science, specifically at the intersection of toxicology and chemicals 
and fabrics and fashion. It's just not an area of study that is taken seriously and gets grants for study. So we have a lot of holes in the research. I mean, we have an overwhelming amount of evidence to show that this is a problem. For example, there was a Harvard study that showed that the introduction of airline uniforms roughly doubled the number of symptoms such as breathing problems, rashes, all of those different things in flight attendants. So we know that this is a problem. There's so much more evidence. We know that there are chemicals being discovered that have known links to cancer, to to sensitivities, to reproductive toxicity. But the holes in the research are being leveraged in order to stave off any accountability or legislation around this. Airline uniforms are not the only articles of clothing infused with chemicals, of course. It turns out that almost every kind of clothing and accessory you can imagine has some kind of chemical footprint. But you will never know which chemicals are in which pieces of clothing because no disclosure is required. This is a problem for ultra-fast fashion brands especially, but also fast fashion brands, mass market brands, mall brands, even sustainable brands, brands that call themselves sustainable, and luxury brands. All of them, there are representations of all those types of uh, children's brands. There are examples of companies that do absolutely nothing around chemical safety in all of those product categories. So you might ask, what are all those chemicals doing in my shirt, my shoes, my underwear? What possible function does a toxic chemical have in a t-shirt? serve all sorts of functions. Some of them are inherent to producing synthetic fibers. So BPA and phthalates are used as plasticizers in things like PVC. You know, if you're getting a clear shoe, that might be PVC. They are inherent to manufacturing polyester, spandex. Uh, So there are some that are just ingredients. Uh, There are dyes. uh, There are things like lead and heavy metals that are added to dyes in order to brighten them or affix them. There are finishes that are added for performance. So stain repellency, water repellency, anti-odor, anti-wrinkle, easy care. All of those things are put on to maybe provide performance, but really the purpose is so that you can sell a branded textile product and charge more for it. And then there's accidental contamination, just stuff floating around the factory or the warehouse, pesticides, fungicides, things like that, that are not purposefully added, but they end up on there because fashion, you know, it's, you don't know where your fashion has been. Let's put it that way. That was Alden Wicker earlier this year on Green Street News. Another guest, Mike Beliveau, really got our attention when he told us that the state of California was in a battle with Coke over the wording on their plastic bottles, warning consumers that the plastic bottle itself contained chemicals known to cause cancer. Here's Mike Beliveau, founder of Defend Our Health on Green Street News. People don't realize that chemicals migrate out of a plastic bottle into the beverage that you're consuming. Uh, The science that's been published shows that 150 different chemicals have been shown to escape from the plastic into a plastic bottle beverage. We drilled down on one of those that we know the most about, and that's a metal called antimony. And antimony is a probable human carcinogen. We know it causes cancer in workers that are exposed to it. 
and it has all the trappings of causing cancer in the way that a biologist determine that. And this substance is added, it's kind of the final spice when they make the plastic resin. It's a catalyst. It's used to speed up the final reaction to make the plastic. Well, some of this metal or metalloid material, antimony, is carried forward into the plastic. You can measure it in the plastic itself, and some of it migrates out of the plastic into the beverage. We tested 20 plastic bottled beverages purchased at retail, soda, juices, waters, from major brands, and we found antimony in every beverage we tested. This is also a matter of environmental justice. You know, on a population-wide basis, federal government uh, runs what's called a national biomonitoring program. Every couple of years, they go around and select 5,000 Americans randomly to get a even uh, representation. And they, they not only ask them what they eat and what they did in the previous 24 hours, but they test their blood and urine for a variety of chemicals. And that, thus, they establish what the population exposure is to a whole variety of chemicals of concern. And when you look at the federal government's antimony data, you see that uh, Latinx and African-American consumers are disproportionately exposed at a higher level than white consumers. This is just on average across the American population. Further, young children uh, and older children are exposed to much higher levels than adults. So this is a matter of environmental injustice where certain groups of people are disproportionately impacted, and they happen to be groups that have the least power or face the most discrimination or oppression in our society. And that's just not right. That's that's unjust. But the environmental injustice is even worse further upstream. <laughs> and by upstream, I mean, where does the plastic come from? So there's about 10 producers of this type of plastic, which is called PET. It has the number one resin identification code. That's the most common plastic used in plastic bottles. Uh, it's made at about 10 locations in the U.S., mostly in the Carolinas, in the Southeast. And the production of this PET plastic resin for both plastic bottles, but also for polyester clothing, because polyester is simply PET plastic in fiber form, produces a toxic byproduct called 1,4-dioxane. This is a probable human carcinogen as you know, it's very persistent in water. It does not break down naturally in water. And there's some 20,000 industrial facilities in the United States that must report releases of toxic chemicals to the US EPA every year. And we looked at what was reported for 1,4-Doxane. And amongst 20,000 industrial facilities, these 10 PET production plants were in the top 20 for releases of 1,4-Doxane to both the air and also to the water. And we know that this chemical has been detected in the drinking water downstream, in the Cape Fear watershed in North Carolina, in the Ohio River uh, as well, downstream of these PET production plants. And just this month, the US EPA released a draft risk assessment that concludes that 1,4-Dioxane posed from PET resin, plastic resin production poses an unreasonable risk to human health for both plant workers, but also people that live downstream and who breathe the air downstream or drink the water. So this is a very serious uh, underreported toxic hazard that is uniquely associated with PET plastic 
And PET plastic production is driven by two things, plastic bottles and polyester clothing. Those are the two major uses. You're listening to a special year-end edition of Green Street News, and that was Mike Beliveau of Defend Our Health on the show earlier this year. Another guest on our show recently was Jackie Bowen, executive director of the Clean Label Project. Like many young moms, Jackie was really concerned about what might be in the food she was feeding to her new baby. Here's Jackie Bowen earlier this year on Green Street News. I'm a food safety and quality systems engineer, which I tell people makes me a professional buzzkill at dinner parties. So if you want to be talked out of literally drinking or eating anything, I'm your girl. I know where the bodies are buried. When it comes to food safety in America, so much of the attention has been focused on microbial and pathogen contaminants, things that can contribute to vomiting, diarrhea, worse within 24 to 72 hours. But my concern and kind of Clean Label Project's concern is You know, what we see is there's an increase in consumer awareness and attention about the food you eat, the consumer products they use, and how it's linked to long-term chronic disease, things like cancer and infertility, that even the absence of federal regulation, there are things you can do now in order to minimize your exposure. And this is, you know, especially important for me as both a public health practitioner, executive director of Clean Able Project, as well as the parent of a two-year-old. The reality is that a lot of that narrative around baby food safety these days is around heavy metals. A few years ago, you had a congressional investigation into levels of heavy metals in baby food. You have um, different types of consumer advocacy, exposés around levels of heavy metals in, in baby foods, infant formulas, those types of things. The reality is that when you're talking about contaminants, they're never found, they're not ingredients. You would never find them on a product label. But when it comes to things like heavy metals, when you think about things like arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury, they're actually present naturally occurring in the Earth's crust. They're right up there on the periodic table of elements next to oxygen and hydrogen, you know, the building blocks of everything. However, because of human causes like mining, fracking, industrial agriculture, the use of wastewater for irrigation, in the form of pollution ends up in the air, the water, and the soil, and then you get these pollution hotspots. In the absence of federal regulation requiring brands to think about this element of food safety, they get missed and pollution knows no boundaries. So even when food companies have quality control departments to ensure their products are free from pathogens or insect parts, they can still miss the bigger picture of what kinds of toxins might be in their supply chain. And the government hasn't yet established regulations for manufacturers to test for those things. You know, unbeknownst to brands, because they're not testing for it, it's not part of their traditional food safety plan, not part of their hazard analysis and critical control point as part of their good manufacturing practices. These things are missed. They're not paid attention to. And because of that, inadvertently, they end up in the manufacturing line and ending up in finished products, which is especially relevant when you're talking about vulnerable populations. And the thing is, when it comes to things like heavy metals, arsenic, cadmium, lead, and mercury, it's not like the jury is still out. It's very clear that these are the ramifications of lead exposure on the developing brain. There's Many studies have shown that this is the actual public health ramifications, especially when you're talking about kiddos. The difference is it has not yet made its way into public policy, but it doesn't mean that brands can't proactively do things in order to minimize their, you know, their exposure. They can think about the way they source ingredients differently. They can do proactive testing to figure out who's got the good stuff, who's got the bad stuff, and purchase their ingredients accordingly. 
What's interesting in the U.S. is over the past several years, there has been, which kind of helps a little bit restore my faith in humanity, is that there is some attention finally taking place at the federal level. We've got different activities called like the Baby Food Safety Act of 2021. You have other standards from the FDA, like Closer to Zero program. And most recently in the state of California, you have a law that's called AB 899 that requires mandatory heavy metal testing effective January 1, 2024 for baby foods and mandatory heavy metal disclosure beginning January 1, 2025. And at the end of the day, all of these things are great for consumers, but here's the reality. My son is currently two years old and the Closer to Zero program is something like a seven-year commitment. So by the time he's in third grade, I'll know what baby food I should have fed him. That was Jackie Bowen, executive director of the Clean Label Project, appearing on the show earlier in the year. We talk a lot on Green Street about how it can take science a long time to catch up with commerce. Products get out into the market and start making money long before scientists can fully understand how they might be impacting people. When Polly Marshall was diagnosed with breast cancer, she and the other members of her support group decided they didn't want to wait for years to find out if the chemicals in the personal care products they had been using might be triggers for breast cancer. So they took things into their own hands Here's Polly Marshall earlier this year on Green Street News. I started going, you know, to the support group at my local hospital while I figured out what kind of treatment I was going to need. And ultimately, I had three lumpectomy-type surgeries, chemotherapy for four months, and radiation therapy, and then I took all the possible combinations of anti-hormonal drugs, tamoxifen, and various aromatase inhibitors for the requisite like nine to 10 years. But what happened was our support group was just so important to me. And there was a cohort of us who kind of went through, we were newly diagnosed together, and we went through all our different types of treatment. And when we finished our treatment, we kept meeting and we felt like, whoa, we have just finished doing all this work to save our own lives. And our next thought was our kids. And we just felt like, what can we do so that our daughters and their whole generation and our sons don't have to go through this? You know, we periodically in this group had always asked ourselves, why do we think we got breast cancer? People came up with these theories like, oh, it's because I'm too stressed at my job. That was the most common one. And then there was, you know, I took birth control pills starting when I was, you know, 16 and a half. Or we had a lot of people with this from the Central Valley. I rode my bike behind the DDT spraying truck in the middle of the summer because it was cool spray. <laughs> it was, I did hormone replacement therapy or I didn't breastfeed my children or I didn't breastfeed them long enough or I didn't have children <laughs> or, you know, it's all these things that we blamed ourselves for until we started looking around and saying, you know, what about this milieu of toxic and chemical exposures that we're all exposed to and that we know genetic propensities or not, and none of us had any apparent genetic predispositions. We just knew that milieu that we had grown up in 
had in some way helped bring us each to our cancer diagnosis. Polly Marshall's support group decided they wanted to focus their efforts on kids. They didn't want their kids to have to go through the same ordeal they had just been through. They knew that there were what scientists called windows of vulnerability, particular stages during our lives when cells are rapidly developing and we are particularly at risk for all kinds of hormonal mischief. The windows of vulnerability, you know, are when breasts are growing or changing. And so it's in utero, <laughs> it's puberty, it's pregnancy, it's breastfeeding, and menopause. So there's been a lot of focused attention, and that's why we were all so concerned about the personal care products, because we all had kids that were, you know, those ages in puberty, adolescence, and we were tired of, you know, fighting with them without having the, the scientific information. That was breast cancer activist Polly Marshall on Green Street News earlier this year. As many of you know who follow the show, we dedicate a lot of our work to the health and safety of children. This fall, we helped our friend attorney Julian Gresser develop the International Declaration on the Human Rights of Children in the Digital Age, a formal legal document that sets out three fundamental rights of all children, the right to be free from addictive platforms and apps, the right to be free from commercial exploitation of their data, and the right to be free from excessive radiation from wireless devices. The declaration was delivered to the UN in November and is on the web at thechildrensdeclaration.org. Here is attorney Julian Gresser appearing on Green Street News earlier this year. The protection of children is already a part of international customary law. The basis for international law are the decisions of the international court, international treaties and conventions, and what is called customary law, which is an independent basis for the creation of legal norms. You can sue in the United States under U.S. law, implementing and incorporating international custom, as you can in other countries. It's self-executing. And so it seemed to me there was a legal principle here that was important. It turns out that children, as, as we know, are enormously vulnerable. So that was the first motivation. And then it seemed to me, given the data that, that actually you guys have developed with the Tech Safe Schools project and the scientists and pediatricians and others that you brought into that project have exposed me to understanding the special vulnerability for children. And as an international lawyer, it was clear to me that there was a norm, what we call an international law custom, that just needed to be articulated that probably was universally held. Namely, that children deserve, who are defenseless, must be protected, and that nobody was speaking out on an international legal area about the protection of children, particularly in the digital age. We do have some very substantial data, as you know, studies all over the world, but somehow or other, because this pollutant is less visible than lead or uh, mercury or cadmium, and then the industry is vastly more powerful than those companies. I mean, this is the telecom industry as deeply embedded in industrial infrastructure of the United States. We all worked together and had our initial focus on children being exposed to non-ionizing radiation from digital devices, electronic products, including cell towers, which are being 
placed. Macro Tower is right in children's playgrounds or on the top of schools, but also cell phones and smart meters and so forth. All these, the Internet of Things, that seemed to be a clear nexus that deserved attention in an international declaration for the protection of children. And it was clear to me that this declaration could set up legal actions that could be taken and the benefits of one advance in one jurisdiction could be rapidly applied since the same kinds of technical, scientific, medical, legal issues were common across national boundaries, which is the same insight I had about the Stockholm Conference. Uh, but then something quite interesting has happened. And that is that a number of the participants who we work with of our team suggested that screen time addiction should be included. That was attorney Julian Gresser talking about the new International Children's Declaration. That's going to do it for this special edition of Green Street News. Special thanks to all our guests who have joined us on Green Street News this year. Thanks also to our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>